the BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are here with you on this journey every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. In today's interview with Elizabeth Reed, we discuss the media's influence for better and for worse on LGBTQ identity and cultural interpretations. Elizabeth Reed is a cultural sociologist and lecturer at Goldsmiths University in London, whose research focuses on LGBTQ relationships and families, contemporary childhood, and the role of media and cultural representations in identity making. I'd love to kind of talk to um, invisibility versus representation. I'm going to read a quote here from you and then continue with the question. So this was kind of mentioned in your thesis. Coming out queer is not merely a personal process of identity, but involves a cultural process of reassessing, embracing, refusing, and combining media representations. And again, I think this is something that is so true for, for us all, um, regardless of any associations or different identities. We're all so confused yeah. <laughs> so constantly reassessing our identities and also so restricted by but dependent on, on the media. And especially when the media in some ways, and especially today, as it's transformed and progressed, lends to these new representations, but in a way I find also lends to new restrictions that can almost be misleading, being like, look, we're we're representative, but they almost more subtly play into certain stereotypes. And so I'd very huge question, but love to kind of hear from the perspective of the past to begin kind of where we stood with representation mm-hmm. and, and how kind of restricted or, or how that played into people's identity development in the past. And then we can continue to the, yeah, the present day. Absolutely. So I think most of what I'm talking to here is going to be very much Western, very much um, Anglophone mm-hmm. representation, because that's where my research looks. Um, I'm also broadly talking to kind of a British perspective. I think those things are important to note because representation yeah. and culture, they vary so Definitely. wildly and they mean so many different things. Um, I think first, it's really important to say that queer people have always existed in representation. We often think of, finally, a gay character on TV. 
And actually, what that usually means is we're describing, finally, a character who has been explicitly labelled as gay and Mm. has said repeatedly, I am gay. (laughs) Those codes by which we might see ourselves and see queerness have been present for a very long time. There's a lot of work um, written about um, the art of queer reading, of seeing queer things, of finding queer characters, of finding points of identification in mainstream media in particular um, by queer people throughout history. Um, And that means looking for kind of codes, ways of being. I think one of my favourite examples perhaps is Calamity Jane, the film Calamity Jane. So um, often thought of as a lesbian film. Um, There's a number and hugely loved by lots of queer people for a lot of the content of that film. So the resolution of Calamity Jane, of course, is two heterosexual weddings. However, that's sort of a side note in what is for many people a very queer story which is Calamity Jane continually mistaken for a woman goes and kidnaps a woman to bring her back to their city to uh, to play in their theatre she and uh, the woman both reject all the men in the town and move in together and sing a lovely song called A Woman's Touch <laughs> <laughs> about the uniqueness of a woman's touch mm. around the home um, and have a generally lovely little house together. Very they intimate set, relationship. They set up home, they have an intimate relationship, they have a friendship, but it's a very deep friendship. So uh, the crisis point in the movie comes when Calamity and Katie, Katie Brown is the friend, um, have been living together for some time, and, and Calamity's incredibly happy. And Katie Brown receives a proposal of marriage from one of the, the hunky guys in the town, shall we say. <laughs> and... Um, and it kind of follows in a neat kind of way. The film quickly tries to resolve this and gives Calamity a, uh, a, a wedding proposal as well. And she sings an incredibly mournful song called Secret Love, in which she reflects on how she had a secret love. And it's now kind of come to the fore and been recognised. But it doesn't quite come off as a sort of, finally, my love has been resolved and I get to marry my love. It very much comes off as a very sad... I've been hiding this secret love for so many years and it's hurt me. It's had this pain and it's here, but it's gone. So there's this undercurrent or um, subtext within the entire film, which is read frequently as as a queer film. And, and this is the sort of reading that has happened and does happen for queer people to find space in representations which exist in the mainstream, which are very available, which are very easy to access, in which non-heterosexual relationships and non-heterosexual intimacies can be seen and celebrated. So those songs, those kind of characters become kind of totems of what it means to be gay, what it means to be queer, what it means to have a relationship which is secret, of a love which you can't talk about. Um, and those kind of ways of seeing, ways of reading are have historically been used by gay people, have historically been used by, by LGBT people to insert those stories into the mainstream in plain sight um, and kind of disguise them subtly, usually just by kind of tacking on a heterosexual resolution, which is quite mm. a nice way of doing it. Um, and that's used still. In my research, I found lots and lots of parents 
use these kind of tactics to find ways to talk about their families, to reassure their children that their family fitted, that there was space in society for their family, that their family was acknowledged and validated in some way. Um, One example is um, of a family who... um, so they were one of the poly I was going to say poly couples it's not really a great this is where our language sometimes falls down I think (laughs) they were poly they were both bisexual and together they had a child Um, they also had um, other partners living with them at different times and um, although their other partners didn't parent their child they were kind of supporting them parenting and they talked to me about a show from the 60s called The Clangers it's a British show, it's a stop motion animation um, which has been remade again now by the BBC and in the episode they talked about the Clangers who are a tiny little kind of mouse-like race who live on a moon Um, and their friend the Soup Dragon who is a dragon who makes soup (laughs) what else? (laughs) I already love him (laughs) or her or her, well so the Soup Dragon's really unhappy because she doesn't have a baby and the, the clangers kind of they consult about what to do about this and they, they consult with their friend the iron chicken who's really wise as as iron chickens are wont to be and the iron chicken says well the soup dragon's sad because she wants to have a baby you can help that you can make that happen we don't need we don't need a we don't need a daddy soup dragon we just need the soup dragon and you guys you guys being a community all you need to do is gather up these things and they're quite abstract they have to get some musical notes <laughs> and this is how the ingredients to make a baby to make a baby yeah yes. and an egg musical notes. and they put this all together in an egg and the iron chicken fires a laser at the egg <laughs> laser laser yeah to fertilize the egg yes uh-huh and then a baby soup dragon hatches and oh, it's not a soup dragon iron chicken. No. Oh, it's no, not it's, a it's soup chicken. No, it's not a soup chicken. It's just a soup <laughs> or dragon. Or an iron dragon. Or an iron dragon. <laughs> it's it's just a soup, a soup dragon. And the soup dragon is absolutely delighted. And she celebrates. And all the clangers celebrate. Amazing. And they kind of live happily ever after yeah, for that episode. The community is the family. Yeah. So this is this was a show they loved watching with their child. And it seemed to mirror the kind of relationships they had and the support they had from friends and family and the support they gave to other other um, people as well. And, and other friends who, for example, sought to become lone parents um, and sought to build their families in different ways. And it's this kind of finding stories in plain sight. So this idea that representation of LGBTQ people is always lacking is true in kind of a broad way. And I'm not dismissing the importance of having explicitly queer characters on TV, having explicitly trans characters on TV and film and radio and everything else. (laughs) Media. Yeah. (laughs) All the media. All the media. Um, But I think it's I think it's really important to note that people find solutions. People find ways of finding Mm -hmm. themselves Mm -hmm. and talking about themselves in different ways and and those ways have existed for a really long time are in some ways part of the kind of cultural knowledge that I was talking about before, which comes from being part of a community. Um, You can go to a gay club I used to go to years ago. I used to go to a tiny gay pub, the only gay pub in Lancaster, which is up north in a very small city. And we all turned up there as wide-eyed 18-year-olds to learn about our community 
and were inducted into it by drag queens and older and older gay people um who taught us the songs who taught us the different uh, musicals who taught us the different cultural notes that had been passed along and shared and had different meanings and that keeps happening we keep passing on we keep sharing and i think it's an interesting way of thinking about family as well that family expands far beyond those narrower kind of things we thought about before too what knowledge can we share about who we are and where we can find out each other it's passed on through songs it's passed on through films it's passed on through tv it's passed on through the clangers apparently um in lots of kind of different ways and it was passed on originally through storytelling yeah kind of the first version of media but i i love that idea especially since we all have very complex identities whether kind of ethnicity or racially or kind of interests that we have in niche interests or coming from different structures of families that it's so hard in general to find a representation of somebody in the media Mm. that you really identify with so I think the importance of really kind of going to maybe more non-traditional media or really just kind of digging deeper and seeking it out um, is a really important lesson. I think so. And I think as well, it's that it's difficult. It is difficult never to see yourself represented and having to work at it, having Mm -hmm. to work at finding ways to talk about yourself, having to work at having cultural reference points saying, you see that character? We're kind of like them that's really helpful that helps all of us orientate ourselves um in society and culture um and if you don't have that you do work at it but by being forced to work at it you're sometimes also gonna think a lot harder about what works for you is that kind of typical relationship the best relationship for me is that expectation that i will meet someone be monogamous move in with them have a kid that kind of very normative lifestyle which we all kind of think critically about to a degree mm-hmm. if you never see anyone like you represented mm-hmm. doing that then you have to maybe start thinking well actually is any of that what I need is any of that what I want is this gonna help me towards a fulfilling way of life a fulfilling relationship would it be better if I had multiple partners would it be better if right now I was with a woman, in the future, maybe I would be with a non-binary person. Mm-hmm. Is my identity as fixed as that? Mm-hmm. Just because when I was a kid, I was a girl, is that who I'm going to be in the future? And I think there are kind of... I'm always reluctant to say it's a terrible old time being gay, because it's not. There are lots of wonderful... Um, different ways of being different knowledges different sharing different culture that we that we have that we share that we can reflect on and whilst i wouldn't for a minute undermine how difficult it can be and how challenging and the types of discrimination lgbtq people continue to face there is a rich culture which comes with it and there is a rich um reflection on how we might want to live and how we might move forward which i think all of us can gain from and can keep reflecting on so to kind of bring context to invisibility and representation in media i think it's important to take context from from history Mm. and certain be it legislation or the media that has existed in the past but i would love you to kind of um 
help our listeners maybe understand how some of these events from the past have kind of shaped the world and the media that we live in and with today? Yeah, I think it's interesting to note that the idea that we shouldn't be talking about LGBT relationships hasn't always existed. There was a real movement um, around the kind of beginning of the 20th century reflecting on all the different ways in which human sexuality happens and an emphasis on what was at the time called inverts which is an old-fashioned word for homosexuality Um, and there was an increasing kind of interest in what that might mean and what it might mean to live as an invert and there were books like Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness which was all about um, lesbian relationships and and very passionately written Um, exploring discrimination exploring anxiety about being a lesbian or as it was called at the time invert woman and trying to find women to be with to have relationships with and what that meant and it was incredibly well received that book um initially (laughs) and then as so often happens there was a bit of a a running up to outrage and there was ultimately an obscenity trial over the book and it was banned on the grounds that it promoted um lesbian relationships as being okay it it kind of presented this as well you know there's love here there's something positive here even whilst it represented hardship and unhappiness and that kind of had a knock-on for what kind of books what kind of art people felt they could put forward and not face an obscenity trial there was a real anxiety that anything which represented lesbian relationships for example as positive as fulfilling as enjoyable was going to fall foul of obscenity laws and that kind of pattern of backwards and forwards on let's let's try and think about what it means to have relationships that aren't heterosexual let's talk about people's experience of these things being pushed back against well you're undermining heterosexuality you are making it too risky you are giving people the impression that this is a good thing to choose um is a is a very common pattern over history we're seeing it right now in fact the idea that just talking about being trans will somehow transform children into trans adults is sort of that same pattern again the idea that just being exposed to the idea hearing that it's okay not to be cisgender, not to be heterosexual, will just ping, (laughs) produce um, gay and trans children. Um, And in the UK, that really came to a head in the 80s. There was a book, it was called Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin. It was distributed to schools with a view to being used by teachers, not, not children, to help them understand that not all of their pupils are likely to come from heterosexual families. And it depicted the life of a girl, Jenny, with her father's Eric and Martin. Um, at the time, um, the papers, the tabloids got hold of this and were outraged and, and a kind of moral panic exploded across the country, suggesting that gays were trying to corrupt our youth. They were trying to, they were trying to turn all the children, they were trying to destroy the family and society was going to come crashing down. Um, And the response from the Conservative government at the time was to introduce a piece of legislation which has come to be known as Section 28 and was in fact, for the nerds out there, (laughs) uh, Clause 28 of the Local Government Act 1988 
Um, and in it, um, it explicitly banned the teaching or promotion of homosexuality as a pretend family relationship. So, in effect, it meant that teachers were not allowed to speak about, to acknowledge, to recognise that not every family was heterosexual and not every relationship was heterosexual for fear of prosecution. That law was in place until 2003. Yeah, which is, I think, people are always surprised by. And it's sort of an example of how perfectly it worked is that people didn't know what was missing from schools because nobody was allowed to talk about it in schools. (laughs) The fear of individuals, because it was, if you were um, found to have flouted this law, this clause, it would be an individual prosecution. So the teacher who spoke about non-heterosexual relationships would have been individually prosecuted for this rather than the school as a whole. And would that include openly identifying with their own identity? Yeah, absolutely. So the fear that to be known to be gay would itself be interpreted, because it's, because it's quite vague that wording. What does it mean to promote? Mm. Does it mean just to speak about it? Or does it mean to say it's better than being heterosexual? Mm. That, that vagueness really worked to instill a lot of fear and a lot of worry about how how can you cope with this how can you deal with this and so whilst up to sort of 88 we might suggest there was some kind of forward movement to inclusion and diversity in the types of families being represented 88 in the UK marked a kind of a full stop in that a very significant stop point and whilst mainstream media increasingly represented LGBTQ lives and started to think about and talk about um, non-heterosexual parents, schools very particularly and very specifically continued to pretend that didn't exist. There just was no scope to talk about it in schools. So there was a real um, arresting of what type of media was available in schools and could be spoken about in schools. And I think it's interesting that it was promote, it was prompted by this book, this idea that a single representation could be that disrupted to everything. Every single part of the world of society was going to come falling down around this one book. And it was somehow representative of a change in society, which some of the tabloids and the conservative government decided was like, no, this is not the change we're going to have. That's so interesting. Um, the idea of what does promotion mean and if it's something people are afraid of even being neutral is interpreted as promoting versus if it's something that people are welcoming and excited about and identify with and neutral wouldn't even qualify Mm -hmm. as promoting um so you mentioned in your research and and kind of in that piece just there how how much people look to the media to find their own kind of role and and identity as a parent. And I think that is true for across kind of all people's gender and sexuality um, identifications. I often say that parenting is the best example and evidence and proof that fake it till you make it is is real (laughs) and that nobody knows what they're doing and there really aren't guidelines out there Mm -hmm. and and so media does become you know besides whatever parenting experience you had or didn't have growing up mixed with media um and kind of 
any of your your findings in your past research and then if you have anything to speak to from your your current and ongoing research as well yeah um so i think that kind of balancing of coming driving forward from that idea of this banning this banning of any discussion of different kinds of families in schools and a lot of the parents in my research like me grew up during this period i went to the entire period i was at school was perfectly covered by this piece of legislation so there's a thought of well what do i want to do for children if i have children now how am i going to change the education they had versus the education i had a lot of the parents i spoke to talked about a feeling of responsibility of ensuring their children had models and a value placed on any identity they might find in the future um, and an and a anxiety to ensure that their children didn't feel they had to fight through stigma didn't have feel they had to fight to find representations that that helped them understand who they were and talk about who they were so a lot of parents were trying to find representations things to point out to their children not just to say this is who we are as a family but also to kind of furnish their children with the resources they might need for any number of different kind of life courses and that includes being heterosexual as well as being um, as well as being lgbt and for some of those parents particularly a lot of the women i spoke to there was a feeling that as lesbian women they'd been brought up to hearing that lesbians weren't mothers lesbians were not really women that kind of negative stereotypes about of lesbians being not feminine um, and not mothers for sure not around children led them to feel that when they became mothers when they chose that when they rejected the expectation they couldn't be that they had to work out a way to be mothers which was also a way to be lesbian mothers a way to keep their identity their individual identity and the value they placed on their connection to um, lesbian and bisexual community present in their identities and take forward the things they'd learned and kind of navigated particularly around gender so many of them um, one person I spoke to talked about feeling as a lesbian growing up as a lesbian you have to reflect on what it means to be a woman because there's so many expectations about what it means to be a woman which are tied up with a very particular kind of femininity and that femininity being tied up with heterosexuality. So if you're a lesbian, how do you negotiate what it means to be a woman? Can you be feminine and be a lesbian? Of course you can. But trying to find a way to articulate that and make it make sense for you can be really challenging. Similarly, some of the women I spoke to talked about how few representations there were of butch women parenting that whilst it is getting to the point now where in lots of mainstream representations you can see lesbian mothers, all of these lesbian mothers, or at the very least often uh, just two women together, so they might be bisexual mothers, we don't know, <laughs> um, are incredibly feminine and conform to motherhood as it exists in lots of traditional ways. They look like a good feminine woman who just happens to be with another woman instead of a man. And they were talking about how this values a very normative idea of motherhood and femininity. To be a mother, you must be feminine. And they were saying, I'm not feminine. Why can't I have representation of who I am? I have a lot to offer my kids too. I'm a good mother too. There isn't. There needs to be space to recognise the diversity of gender expression that comes and is tied up with motherhood. 
some of the women I spoke to said mother isn't even an identity I want I parent I birth a child but mother isn't who I am I have a whole other identity mother is tied up with too much stuff it's tied up with too much to do with femininity it's tied up to do with too much to do with heterosexuality and nuclear family and I want a different way forward I want to present to my children a different way of parenting that says I am this person genetically your mother but also my role to you my relationship to you is about way more than a very narrow idea of what mother might be um, and they wanted to present to their children different ways of parenting they wanted to say well if I tell my child I'm not mother they should call me by my name for example then can I help my child work out different ways of doing family as they grow up can I help my child think differently about how we come together the choices we're making and our kind of responsibilities to one another I did have something to say about sex <laughs> um, just that I kind of mentioned it a little bit the idea that often if you're not heterosexual you're presumed to be too sexual so a lot of the parents I spoke to talked about um, a lot of the pushback against LGBT people parenting being won't someone think of the children they can't be exposed to this horrible weird sex that non-heterosexual people have um, and that's being played out currently in protests that are happening around the country at the moment against inclusive um, sex and relationship education in schools which um, people are campaigning against the inclusion of information about non-heterosexual sex in that as though somehow that's inappropriate for children to understand but heterosexual sex isn't and that's a global campaign or are there it's certain currently i mean where... i think it it's echoed around the world but yeah. currently it's it's kind of reaching fever pitch in the uk in particular it's been focused around birmingham but it's it's spread out to a few other cities as well um i heard yesterday that nottingham had also received protesters um so it's there's a there's a big pushback against the idea that anything to do with non-heterosexual sex mm -hmm. should never be spoken about in front of children as though and one of my participants said this as though our bedrooms don't have doors which i love i love that idea that that's the the anxiety mm -hmm. is that somehow our bedrooms don't have doors heterosexual parents bedrooms have doors mm -hmm. heterosexual people just do really ordinary things in their bedrooms and somehow being queer means you have incredibly weird sex which might be true but you can definitely have incredibly weird sex if you're heterosexual. I'd also just love to clarify how incredibly weird children think their parents' yeah. sex is regardless <laughs> exactly. of who their parents are and how much they are generally. <laughs> and this is probably unhealthy in general, how much they're really like disgusted yeah. by the thought of their parents regardless of who they are having exactly. sex so i don't think any form of it would like be appealing no. nor promoting <laughs> to them um well i just had kind of one last question uh to close up having to do with kind of current events um i'm not sure if you followed the women's soccer world yeah Cup i've seen some recently. stuff about it uh, and yeah, the the articles that came out and the fact that the two teams that were in the finals had the most openly um, queer or gay members on their team and how this kind of created this amazing wave of awareness and promotion and kind of how around the world there have been so many people who have come out saying how much they identified with them and felt supported and 
kind of motivated. And this was such an amazing example of representation in the media in such a positive and like strong light. Um, so I just was curious if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, I think the takeaway I would like people to have for my thoughts on representation is that representation isn't good and it isn't bad. Mm-hmm. It's just a tool. And for some people, that will be the the shattering moment of finally I exist, someone can see me. And many, many, many LGBT people have had that at some point in their lives. I think the value of being able to talk about your identity through reference to other people, through reference to fictional people or real people that you can see in media that everyone else can see, which is really easily accessible, cannot be understated. And certainly in my research, again and again, people have talked about how being seen and how people explicitly acknowledging they see your identity is incredibly useful. In um, research on bisexual people's relationships, many bisexual people who are in relationships with heterosexual people talked about how it changed how they felt about themselves every time their partner explicitly acknowledged that they were still bisexual, corrected people who assumed they were now heterosexual, Mm. um, and how it allowed them to have a sense of their identity, not just being recognised, but by being recognised, that it was valid. Seeing, for example, uh, the US women's football team being celebrated for their incredible success and having them explicitly say and be seen um, as lesbians changes how you might feel about yourself because you can see success and you can see it acknowledged and you can see society as a whole saying, this is good. Mm-hmm. This is a Amazing. person who we respect. Yeah, And, and I think that ethic of People respect... People who we want to be and yeah. that's regardless of kind of the people's identities. I remember I read an article written by a mom who had asked her her young son, you know, do boys wear uh, the soccer jerseys of the, the women's team at school? And his answer was just, yeah, why? Yeah. Like, duh. Yeah. Um, and then her, like, <laughs> silently celebrating <laughs> this thing that for her was groundbreaking, but for yeah. her, her son was just kind of duh yeah and asking her older daughter who was in high school and kind of getting the the same response that kind of neutral Mm -hmm. uh yeah just acknowledgement in a way that i don't know was just so profound but again that sometimes acting as if it was nothing in some instances isn't good but in some instances makes it more it's transformative yeah Yeah. i think um richard dyer says that representation has real consequences for real people Mm -hmm. we think of it as ephemeral we think of it as sometimes just on the edges of what we're doing but it's not it's central it's central in how we can talk about ourselves it's central in how we might feel about ourselves and others and it helps us understand ourselves and our relationships to others as well because it gives us models it gives us ways of talking Mm -hmm. about it um, amazing example of that. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to sharing more of the resources with our listeners. And I'd love to put together a list of kind of media resources for LGBTQ yes. and for anybody yeah. seeking better representation um, or seeking media that lends itself to better representation. Um, so thanks so much for joining us. Thank today. you. Mm-hmm.
The BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate, is produced by Sasha Laurie in Berkeley, California. Dialogue, narrative, and content crafting by Amy Soper. Audio editing, good music vibes, and sound mixing, Daniel Herrera. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at bbxx.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time, 